0: Well, good morning, church. Today is a day of anticipation. This month, this season of Advent, is all about anticipating. If you recall, last week in our passage in Luke 21, 25 through 36, we heard Jesus speaking of signs and wonders that would give us this reason to anticipate His coming once again. This... This last Sunday, we had a fun exercise as well. Did you, you've eaten some candy since last week, Jaden? So, Jaden, uh, if you guys weren't here last week, Jaden was sitting up here on a stool, and I gave him a piece of candy, and I said, Don't eat it. Sit there the whole time through my whole sermon, and don't eat it, because if you don't eat it, I'll give you this entire Advent calendar full of 20, 24 more chocolates. So, he was able to anticipate an even greater thing. He had hope for something so much more if he just sat there and did what he was doing in that time and place. And that's basically what Jesus was saying. Sometimes, though, we as the church have this, this tendency to focus on or even obsess on those signs. We were talking about it last week that Jesus said there would be signs in the sun and in the moon. And sometimes there are people... in the if you spend any time on the internet at all, I'm sure you've seen this means this and that means that. And these people just focus and obsess over these signs and argue over what the signs mean or what they don't mean. Jesus kind of kind of comments on that without anyone asking him to. He said, it'll be so clear. It'll be just like you can tell it's summertime because fig trees have leaves and that's an indication. We asked our children last week how they knew it was wintertime. They said, uh, because it snows. Because it rains. It's so simple, even a child can tell. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is not all Jesus shared in this passage. He also told us how we were to live until the day of his return. That this should be our focus. And that was what I was trying to have Jaden help me illustrate. Is that he had to wait. He wasn't sure how long. But he had to sit there and hold this thing. And do what he was called to do with it. Even though maybe based on human understanding... Based on, how old are you? Based on 11-year-old understanding, holding chocolate and not immediately popping it into your mouth doesn't make a lick of sense. That doesn't make any sense. Like, what? I have to hold it? And if you're honest, because I heard later, was it, was it a little harder than you let on? Was it a little more difficult than you thought? What were you thinking? You are just going to wipe it on your boot? Why? You didn't want to see it. You just didn't want to see it anymore. You wanted it to be gone and not to be tempting you anymore. Then he really wasn't going to eat it. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> he wanted to ruin the chocolate, so the temptation was gone. Oh, that's so great. Sorry. <laughs> I, that was like the meanest sermon. I told everybody last month. Like, this is the meanest sermon. We're going to tease children with candy. Uh, so I'm sort of sorry. Not really, though. I might do that again. <laughs> But basically, Jaden had this hopeful anticipation. If he could hold off, if he could just do what he was told, if he could just simply follow those directions, then he would receive this amazing reward at the end, even though he didn't know how long he had to wait. And I definitely taunted him. And I said, hey, I think I'm going to just say that whole sermon again real quick. And even though it was a short sermon, did it feel like a long time? Not really, but it was still difficult. You didn't want to look at chocolate for even five more minutes, right? Right. Probably. I could have made it longer, but I decided to be nice. <laughs> Anyways, this season of Advent is a season of anticipation, of having hope, of realizing that there's something special that we celebrate during this time of year, that we commemorate Jesus' arrival as a baby born of a virgin that was this long anticipated event that many for a long time eagerly look forward to that they had their hope rooted in it was an event that that not only gave people hope but it gave them purpose and direction and it kind of set the tone for their lives it shaped how they saw things it shaped how they acted it shaped how they read scripture it shaped everything but what's interesting is even though it happened it didn't necessarily happen the way that they maybe expected it to happen This Sunday, we're going to talk about peace. We're going to talk about hope, peace, joy, and love during this Advent season. But this Sunday is the Sunday of peace. And Why, you might ask, are these the the different things that we speak of during Advent? Why are these things that we associate with the baby Jesus, the coming of a Savior, of a Messiah? For me, it kind of seems maybe painfully obvious. These are the things that our soul craves. These are the things that we often desire almost above all other things. And these are the things that are only found when we live in right relationship with our Creator. When we figuratively, metaphorically sit on stools holding chocolates or whatever we might be called to do that, the rest of the 11-year-olds think, that's crazy, why isn't he just eating that chocolate? It looks really good. Starting to, did it melt in your hand a little bit too? A little, did you lick your hand afterwards? Yeah, I thought you did. And this, of course, this hope, peace, joy, and love is only possible because of the gift that we receive in Jesus. Before his son came, and according to the prophecy that we read in Malachi, one needed to prepare the way ahead of Jesus. And in Luke 1, we see that before Jesus' birth is even foretold, there is the birth of another that is foretold. In the beginning of Luke chapter 1, you would almost assume, oh, it's immediately going to start talking about Jesus, right? But no. In the the fifth verse, there's this discussion already being had about a guy named Zechariah. And that he is going to have a son. And that son would be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Zechariah is a priest, and he's visited by an angel. And this is where that whole, I didn't expect it to happen that way, God, starts to really become abundantly clear. Zechariah was visited by an angel, Gabriel, and this is all in the first half of chapter 1. Feel free to go and read it at home later. Um, Who told him that his wife would become pregnant. And his immediate response was, Nah, she's too old. I'm too old. If he was in front of his wife and he told an angel from God that his wife was too old... I can only imagine that she might have slapped him, but then said, no, but really, Angel, I, I can't be having children now. <laughs> he would get in trouble with his wife, but then she'd probably agree, right? I mean, don't even pretend like that's not what would happen. But he told the angel that he doubted. He expressed to this angel, is like, I don't, this isn't how that works, though. I mean, do, do you need me to explain to you, Angel, how the whole, like, you have to be a certain age to be able to have children, and then normally when you get older, that doesn't happen anymore? Some of you are like, thank God it doesn't continue happening, right? But the angel said, uh, okay, well, this is going to happen, and because you doubted, guess what? You can't talk anymore. Then, Gabe visits Mary, and this is the first mention in Luke of Mary, and she's told she's going to be pregnant too. And Mary said, but that, I didn't do that thing that I was supposed to do to be able to get pregnant, though. That doesn't make any sense. Like, you're going to be pregnant. Your son is going to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior for the world. She's told all this, and unlike Zachariah, she's like, cool, I, what an honor, what a privilege, that's amazing. And this, this is all done when Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth, is six months pregnant. Oh, and for the record, it's worth mentioning, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, it's just something that should be mentioned. Later on in Luke chapter 1, Mary visits Elizabeth, her cousin, because that's what cousins do, and as soon as Mary says anything, as soon as they meet, the child leaps and bounces around in her womb. And then we pick up the story right after this, after after John the Baptist makes his first appearance. We are going to read in Luke chapter 1, 67, the first time that Zachariah is allowed, is able, is physically capable of speaking. So to this point, we can kind of assume. That for about nine ish months, Zachariah couldn't talk. I'm sure some of you some of you women are like, I wouldn't mind if my husband didn't talk so much. That's cool with me. he just be quiet for a little bit. He's always talking about my wife would say he's always talking about trucks. His truck's always broken. Cause it is, it's always broken. It's so annoying. Or he's always talking about football. He's always talking about this. He's like, oh it's peace and quiet. And he had a little writing tablet, and there's some discussion about what the son's name was. So he did communicate some. He he had a little tablet he can do he write out stuff in, in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or whatever language he actually wrote in because being a priest, he probably could speak and write in different languages. But basically, in Luke chapter 1, verse 67, this is the first time that he's able to speak in a long time. And it says, and we have it up on the screen, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. In prophecy sometimes it gets misconstrued. Sometimes people think that prophecy is just foretelling the future. It's like a fortune teller. But oftentimes what we see in the Bible is a prophet is simply the person that tells God's people what God wants them to hear, how to maybe change how they're acting, how, how to maybe change their perspectives, how maybe God is calling them to a different way, or maybe God is affirming what they are already doing. He's saying, yeah, that is what God wants you to do. So this is basically Luke telling us that John the Baptist's father is being used by God to speak God's truth. So that's significant. In verse 68, Bless the Lord God of Israel because He has come to help and deliver His people. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in His servant David's house, just as He said through the mouths of His holy prophets long ago. He has brought salvation from our enemies and from the power of all those who hate us. He has, shown the mercy and to our, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the solemn pledge he made to our ancestor Abraham. He, he has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. You, child, this is him talking to his brand new baby infant son, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way. Just like we saw in Malachi, just like in these other prophecies where one would go before Jesus. You will tell His people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins. Because our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven, will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. and the last verse, I don't think I have it up there. Oh, I do, yes. The child grew up becoming strong in character. He was in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. So the first chapter of Luke, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, starts by talking about this guy named John. And in the first chapter, we hear this prophecy from John's father, who is a priest. And the last line of this prophecy is that all people... Because of, because of John preparing the way, because of Jesus, will be able to no longer sit in this darkness, but to see light, to be guided on a path of peace. And there's a couple other things he says in there that, that he makes mention that then his son continues to talk about, but to guide us, to guide us on the path of peace. It seems very appropriate on the Advent Sunday of peace that this would be Our scripture. But before we talk a little too much about peace, I want to consider a couple things that I think are worthy of note that, that maybe helps shed light in why he's saying this stuff, the language he uses, the things that he's connecting the dots with, because the ancient Israelites had been for thousands of years formed by just about anything but peace. To be formed. Now, maybe we should talk about what that means real quick before we talk about why I say that. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of you have perspectives. I'm sure a lot of you have opinions. It's interesting to have these dialogues about perspectives and opinions. A lot of times, people will say to each other, well, your opinion is wrong. Like, there's no such thing as a wrong opinion. By its very nature, it's just an opinion. It's just what someone thinks. It's, it's not right or wrong. Just like a perspective. I don't have the exact same perspective as anybody in here. The reason that I have my perspective is because I lived the life I lived, and you all each lived the life that you lived. For a result, we have all been shaped and formed by our experiences, by the things that we've learned, by the things that we've seen, by the things that we have experienced. I particularly remembered a story. My sister-in-law said something to us recently. She said, Cal, I'm sure is a third child like what? What are you getting at? She's like, you just like there's a knife right here on the counter. What if he grabbed it? I'm like, well, is he tall enough to grab it? She's like, I think he is. She said, "Oh, well, don't let him grab it." And so, she saw us as parents of our first child, and there is a drastic difference between if you've ever seen those Huggies commercials or whatever they are, it's like first child parents like, "Oh, it's, it's like defusing an atomic bomb." And then second is like, whatever, slap him and do this. it's like, eh. I remember the moment they let us leave the hospital, I kept asking, are you sure we're allowed to take him home on our own? I don't think, I didn't go, there was no class. No one gave me like a certificate of completion. I don't, is this allowed? I don't think you understand. I'm not ready for this. And then for the next, I don't know, seven years? No, he's six. Six years he's woken us up every, not really. We just haven't slept for like seven years, so I really need a nap (laughs) at some point. I'm really going to need to take a nap. But for the first six months to the year of his life, he was up a lot. And that that obviously shaped and formed us. I was just tired a lot. But more than that, I was also shaped by this kind of overwhelming sometimes fear of, I don't want to hurt him. Or I don't want, what if I feed him? What if he's allergic? Just the unending questions of, what if I do something and I mess him up? What, I'm going to have to take him to the hospital and explain. I didn't know babies weren't allowed to play with that. I, who, no one told me. No one taught me how to do that. And it didn't help that my wife was a nurse. And she literally knew every disease that babies could get. Every like, If he does that, then we have to get him tested for that. We need to do this immunization here. <laughs> it's, it's real life. I mean, all of you that had children can remember your first kid and how you were like. <gasps> and it came to an ahead. We had some friends visiting. And Kaysen was only a month old. And they just said something, and suddenly I realized my world was different. I had been shaped and formed in a new way. They said, hey, let's go out to get dinner. Let's go out to eat. And literally for the last month, we had never left the house. For a month, we had this little baby in our, like, protective cocoon where we had Lysol, where we had Purell, where we could do all the things to, like, sanitize everything. And suddenly it dawned on me, like, but there's germs out there. But there's other people. But what if someone coughs in his general direction? And I remember we go out to eat, and we set him next to the table, and the whole time I'm like, don't get too close to him, waiter man. I, you might tip him over. What if you tip him over? And I just, literally every possible scenario of how my child could get hurt was just playing through my head. I'm like, D- why, are he's, why is he so close? He's, is he looking where he's scooting back his chair? My son's right here. Be careful. And I just wanted to yell at everyone that came within like five feet. If I could, Stay away from him. You could hurt. Don't you understand? And I realized later on, we have a third kid now. I was like, where did he go? I mean, the difference is crazy, right? Where is my third son I or third child? I don't know where he went. Where is he? I don't know. The difference is, is, is hilarious. But I realized that I had been shaped and formed, that I had been conditioned in a very brief period of time to see the world in a very new and different way, that everything changed. Suddenly, everything was a threat. Suddenly, everything was, how could that hurt my child? Sud- even just sleeping, it's like if I roll over and he's in bed, That's it, game over. All the things, everything was changed. Everything was different. The same thing happens to us. The same thing happened to the Israelites. They had been conditioned. Not just individually, but their culture had been conditioned. They had lived for so long through their entire existence to to be conditioned by the cycle of their lives. They would initially follow God, enjoy His favor and blessing, Then they would rise to power, they would want to do things their way because, hey, times are good, let's let's do it like everybody else, which would then lead them to try to be like the rest of the world and then have divisions and downfall and then exile. And that exile was always a violent thing. They would go through these cycles where where other enemy nations would take over, where they would be occupied. And just before Jesus' entrance, they are under Roman occupation. And the Romans had a particular knack for being vicious, for coming up with some of the worst ways to execute people, to be the most violent and aggressive force the world had yet seen. So I can only imagine how much war, violence, and anger had formed their perspectives, their beliefs, their actions. So when they heard words like peace, that might have rubbed them the wrong way even. They might have reacted, they might have had a visceral response to hearing those sorts of words. I can't help but wonder how much of the brokenness of this world formed them to be just that, broken. I mean, we ask ourselves questions all the time. I'm sure most of you have likely heard the phrase, do you think the glass is half full or half empty? And I would have to assume that many of the Israelites had kind of a more pessimistic the, the glass is half empty worldview, Because they kind of felt sorry for themselves. They speak of being delivered from their enemies, from those that hate us. They were absolutely formed by having enemies, by war, by violence, by anything but peace. It's a question, this, this question of is the glass half full or half empty that gets to the heart of how we see things here and now today. To whether we see the world bleakly, or optimistically. Up until this very moment, church, humanity has struggled with being formed by all these sorts of things. All of the wrong things. Becoming the opposite of the beautiful creation God has made in each and every one of us. Choosing war instead of peace. Anxiety and worry instead of faith in God instead of prayers calling for His guidance. Up until this point, the collective glass of humanity has probably been half empty. But Jesus, he fixes that, and John paves the way for his coming. The story continues in Luke chapter 3, and we already read it, but I want to read a couple things of note, because I think it's significant to pay attention to. In the first couple verses of chapter 3, we have this heading, and it's John's message. But before we get to his message, we hear about all these fancy-pants people from all these regions that I'm not going to try to read again because they're weird words. We have all these priests and these rulers and we have all these fancy high-up people. So for a moment, let's consider why these first two verses are even in this chapter. Because is this, is this section about John the Baptist or about all those people? Why do you think Luke felt the need to list off all of these higher-ups, all these leaders and priests. Maybe even more curious is who he mentions in the very next section, immediately following the first two verses of all these big wig people. In verse 3, he talks about this guy named John. And John is basically the complete opposite of all of these guys. These guys probably bathed regularly. They probably combed their hair. They probably had haircuts. They probably wore clean clothes. They probably shaved. They probably looked presentable, whatever that looked like in the first century. So it's curious that Luke puts these two groups of people back to back. It seems to me that that there's something of note here that we should consider as well. When When Luke was writing this, the Greek language doesn't have punctuation. It doesn't even have spaces between words, which I don't know how they read that. That would hurt my brain so much. But it's also worth mentioning that this was a continuous thought. There weren't verses in the original text. They didn't have three one, three two, three three. It was just a complete thought. So Luke was putting this stuff back to back on purpose. To me, it's as if Luke is making a point to emphasize how twisted we have done all of this stuff. How backwards we have gotten and how we've been formed and shaped to think that all these things are so important when really God's trying to tell us, it's not. I have something better, but it might look weird to you now because you've been shaped and formed to look for other things, to think that it should be better a different way. Perhaps we need to have a virgin teenager to bring about the baby Messiah instead of what most probably would have assumed the Messiah would look like. A king on a war horse with armies at his beck and call. Maybe we need an elderly woman who shouldn't be able to, to get pregnant to do just that. Get pregnant and be married to a mute priest, which, yeah, Zachariah couldn't talk for a while, but just consider what that meant. He's a priest. What is his main function? Talking. That is his main job, is to be able to read the Torah. To pray, to say, he literally couldn't work. He's like, I guess I'm on disability, guys. I don't know what to do about that. It's like, see you in a couple months, maybe. I don't know. But how ironic is this, that this guy whose number one duty is speaking can't speak. And maybe, just maybe, in this chapter, Luke is trying to tell us that we need a hairy, homeless man who is this unkempt prophet to preach God's truth because... The very well-kempt leaders and priests were getting it wrong because maybe these polished professional religious elite were way off the mark. Maybe they had been accustomed to form to see shape, had their perspective shaped in, in the wrong ways, and they had been leading God's people astray for far too long. It's so crazy, so unconventional, so counterintuitive, so God-like that maybe it just had to work because without his hands in it, there's no other way it would have been possible. At the end of Zechariah's prophecy, he says to be guided in all peace, John, his son, in verses 4, 5, and 6, says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The crooked will be made straight and the rough places made smooth so that all humanity will see God's salvation. It seems to me that both of these men are saying that we need a reality check. We need to be formed in a new way. We need to see things a little bit differently. Obviously, some stuff needs to be fixed. Some valleys need to be filled. Some mountains need to be leveled. Some crooked paths need to be made straight. That is what John is preparing this world for, is the Savior who is going to come and shake it all up. So I ask, are we seeing it clearly, church? We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of reading all this stuff, of understanding the history, of understanding the context. We understand what these people were going through if if ever so slightly. At that period in time, there were people that doubted, they didn't get it. They were so formed by how the world or the, the polished religious elite wanted them to see things that they rejected the Messiah. That they said, no, there's no way that's the Messiah. He wasn't on a battle steed. He was born of a teenage virgin. That's weird. That's probably not the Messiah. They missed it. But I ask, are we seeing this story clearly? Is it forming us to understand that God works in ways that are maybe a little different than the ways humans would work? Are we looking to the way the world operates instead? Because that's what we're used to and that's what we understand. Sometimes, church, God asks us to sit on stools for long periods of time holding chocolate. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes God calls us to do things that are countercultural, that look different, and he's calling us to do it for a reason, because it forms and shapes us in his image to be more like his son. Advent celebrates the incarnation of that son, the son of God, the God that came down and became a human being to be sacrificed once and for all for those broken and sinful ways. It is therefore this opportunity to hit the reset button for all of us, to be reminded once again that a gift is to be offered, that we are giving the gift of salvation freely whenever we were, would be willing to receive it. And that this period of time, this season is... A time we can seriously consider what has been formed in us in this past year or over our life's existence. Is it God's salvation that is being formed in us, or is it the destructive tendencies of the world? Is it war, violence, hate, or bitterness, or is it peace that surpasses all understanding? Is it worry, anxiety, envy, or stress, or hope? that is rooted in knowing we serve a God who loves us enough to actually enter into our brokenness, to offer to help lift us up out of it. That's what incarnation means, that God entered into this brokenness, into this place that is messed up, because He wants to do something about it. He can do something about the messed up nature of our lives, where we have chaos, anxiety, and stress. God can offer peace, where we have nothing but half-empty glasses, God can offer us hope that there's more in the story than what we see, what meets the eye. This Advent season, you'll be given the opportunity to be formed, to have your perspective shaped, to have the direction of your life changed or altered or set, for good or for bad. This time of year, there is a lot going on. And there is even more competing for your attention, to shape your perspective, to set your lifestyle, to change how you live. Let the words of this book do the forming. Let it shape how you live, how you see this world, and how you believe. This season, if we look closely enough, we, we will probably almost certainly see that God has been work at work all the time. And it won't have been marketed by corporations. It won't be on commercials. It won't be plastered on billboards. You won't hear it necessarily on most of the radio stations. But God, since the beginning of this story, since since when all this has happened, since our existence started, has been ever-present and at work in our lives. And Jesus had to come because we continued to mess it up and be formed by the wrong thing so Jesus had to come once and for all to fix that to change that to to make the relationship between us and God a thing that could be permanent that wouldn't be this oh i don't know if i'm good with god or not let me go kill another sheep or another chicken or whatever but that it was even easier than ever to be given the opportunity to have peace to be given hope to be experiencing the love of a god who cares deeply about us and wants us to draw nearer to him. So much. He loves us so much that he sent his son here from heaven to be with us. That's crazy. Who would want to do that? He's in heaven. He's like, "Earth's kind of a bummer. You guys do a lot of dumb stuff." Why would you do that? Why? I can only imagine God up in heaven so many times like, "Why? Why are you doing that now?" That was not smart. I already told you not to do that. But this season, church, I challenge you to look intently to see how God might be subtle but working in profound ways in your lives to bring about peace in your life. This season is busy. Busy. It's chaotic. It's full of anxiety and stress because, oh no, the so-and-sos are coming over to such-and-such. The house needs to be clean. I didn't finish baking the this. I didn't cook the that. The tree isn't perfectly symmetrical. I've spent way too much time on a Christmas tree last night, let me tell you. There are so many things that can take our attention away from what it means to be a part of Advent, from what it means to anticipate, to be excited about, to look forward to the real gift, the real significance of why we set time this time of year to commemorate the gift that we are given So I would challenge you, church, don't give in, don't be formed by the the normal. Don't be formed by the human. Don't be formed and shaped by the worldly, but instead see how God might be transformative in your lives. How God might be calling you to something better, something new, something uniquely God. Something that maybe is only going to happen if God is in it. Like a virgin being the mother of the Savior of the world. Like a priest who can't speak, like an elderly woman who is going to be the mother of a prophet that paves the way before the Savior, like so many others in this good book that God has used to do amazing things. It might look a little bit strange to the rest of the world, but it's the story that God invites us to participate in. And that this that it's not only a story that He invites us into, but it's a story that He enables to, to, to happen to to work to his good will, and he invites us to be part of it. The question for each and every one of us is, are we willing? Are we willing to participate, To to be formed in a new way, to see things a little bit differently, and to be welcomed into this crazy story that we read about in the Gospels? Let's pray, church. God, sometimes we get very distracted. Sometimes we have things that we focus our attention on a little too much. Sometimes we have all sorts of good intentions that we want to do this, we want to do that, that this time of year there's all these traditions that, that aren't inherently bad, but they just bring about stress or they bring about anxiety and when we come to a day where we're talking about peace, it sounds kind of silly. But God, as we read in your scriptures, your people, since long ago, have desperately needed peace in their lives. They've desperately needed to know what it means to have peace that surpasses all understanding. And this peace is a peace that's, that's an eternal peace because still... Even though you give us peace, God, that doesn't mean the world is not in chaos and disarray. But this peace is a peace in knowing that this world doesn't have the final say. That the things happening here aren't all the complete story. They aren't all that is actually happening. That there's something more. Something that we can be hopeful about. God, would you draw our attention and focus on these hopeful things? On these things that that bring about peace, that remind us that even though there's chaos in our lives, that you are still at work. Maybe we don't always get it. Maybe we don't fully understand why you would send a homeless, hairy, smelly prophet to prepare the way for a Messiah. But the only way it could have worked out, God, is because you were involved in it. You enabled your servants to do your good work. Sometimes that's what it takes for us, God. Sometimes we get it so backwards and messed up, you need to do things that just make us scratch our heads to remind us that you are there. Sometimes we get so focused on how we think things should be done that we miss how you call us to do things. So God, would we take these these words, these stories to heart? Would we remember what Advent is about? Would we not give in to the commercialization, the corporate marketing, the this-is-what-Christmas-is-all-about mantras that the world would press upon us? Would we look for those subtle ways that you are at work in our lives, that you are inviting us to enter into this amazing story so that we can anticipate the Savior that we can receive that gift of grace, of love, of peace and hope into our lives and let it form us to see the world a little bit differently so we can make sense out of all the crazy and chaotic. Would we be sensitive to your leading, particularly at these times of year, God, where so much is talked about, about who you are and what you're about? Would we be sensitive to your guiding and leading and how you've called us to live? And would we be willing to do things that might look a little bit silly to the rest of the world, but they're things that bring about peace, things that bring about salvation, things that make this story so amazing to be a part of. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, church, we're going to...